you for joining the online worship service of Waynesboro Grace. Our mission is to glorify God by making disciples making disciples. For more information about our church, you can find us online at waynesborograce.org or on Facebook at Waynesboro Grace. Well, hey Grace, it's good to be with you again. We're in the midst of a bit of a hybrid month, the month of June at this point, uh, this morning being June 14th, and weather permitting, uh, the majority of us would be at Tick Ridge this morning, but we were still putting together an online video, pre-recording it, putting all those details in place in the event that weather becomes such where we can't gather out at Tick Ridge for our in first in-person gathering. Um, or perhaps you might just not yet feel completely comfortable doing so and wanted to still uh, put together a resource that allowed you to participate and to join in, uh, to hear from and look into God's Word and for us to do so together. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be continuing to have worship gatherings at Tick Ridge. And then the plan right now is that on July 5th, we gather back together in the building. Um, still no word yet on what color phase we might be in on that Sunday. Uh, and so things might look a little different depending on if we're in yellow or if we're in green. But um, we will stay tuned and try to figure out what all those details look like as we get a little closer to that particular day. And so this morning, we're going to take a look together at Psalm 44, and we are taking a journey through Book 2 of the Psalter, Psalms 42 to 72. And we're not going to look at all of them, but there are a selected number of psalms that we will be looking at together, and this morning is Psalm 44. And I trust over the last several days, you've begun your summer in the Psalms reading program. The idea would be that uh, there's, there's some bite-sized chunks of the Psalms that we can take each day, and over the course of three months, all of June, all of July, and all of August, we have the opportunity uh, individually but also collectively as we do this together to read through all 150 Psalms together. And then we also want to be memorizing together Psalm 67. And as I indicated last week, I don't know exactly what that's going to look like and how we're going to recite that together and what we're, what we're going to do, but we're going to do it together and it'll be good to do it together because it's always good to memorize God's Word. And as we begin to gather again, uh, what a cool way to memorize a psalm of praise and to do so alongside one another. As we look at Psalm 44, there's a massive question that stands and emerges from the text. And it's a question that you might have asked at a certain point in time in your life. It's a question that may have been asked by others in your life. It's a good question. The psalmist doesn't actually give us an answer, but it's a good question nonetheless. And here's the question, and then we'll pray and we'll dive in to see what is leading and creating this question to come out from the text. Here is the question, why do good things happen 
to God's people. That's what the psalmist is exploring in Psalm 44. Why do good things happen to God's people? We're going to try to think through what the psalmist articulates. Unfortunately, we aren't going to get an answer here, but there's some tremendous tremendous promises that emerge as we look through not only what the psalmist writes, but also where the New Testament comes in regarding this as well. Before we go any further, let's pray together, and then we'll hop into the psalm. God in heaven, we come now, and we ask that you would be our teacher. God, you you tell us in your word that you are the good shepherd. David writes in Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd. Jesus says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. There is this imagery given of you being a shepherd to your people, of watching over them, of caring for them as a good shepherd would. And that same imagery shows up in this psalm as well, but here the psalmist laments that he's like a sheep led to the slaughter. And the unexplained nature of his circumstances and the difficulty of the hard that he is walking through and navigating creates a tremendous, tremendous challenge in his life. It is similar to the question that we ask, why do good things or why do bad things happen to God's people? God, help us to not presume in arrogance to be able to solve and answer completely that question this morning. But rather, God, we ask that you would speak from your word and do so clearly, that we may understand more of your heart, more of your goodness, and more of what you have promised us in the midst of this life as we await the full and final redemption of our bodies now and an eternity spent with you forevermore. And so it's to that end that we ask and we pray that you would be gracious to meet with us. We do those and we pray those things in Jesus' good name. Amen. So the psalmist is asking this question, why do bad things happen to God's people? And I, I, like I said, that's the question that emerges out of the text. We won't find it in particular in that text. But there's a few big takeaways that I want us to see as we look into this psalm. I've already alluded to a few, t- few different times. There's not going to be a resolution given to us. There's not a bow to be found at the end of this. There's not a happily lived after ever after at the end of this psalm. But here's what there is. This psalm, similarly to Psalm 42 and 43 that we looked at last week, this psalm gives us permission to feel and to cry out in anguish. See, this psalm in I think the same could be said for most, if not all, of the Psalms, gives us permission to feel. God's created us with feelings. He's created us with emotions. We have permission to feel. And in the midst of the hard, and in the midst of the anguish, 
there is permission given to cry out, to feel. The psalmist gives us an indication through his actions and his words that he is he, he's doing right. And God has inspired him to write these words that cry out to God with the question, why? One commentator said this, This psalm is perhaps the clearest example of a search for some other cause of hard other than guilt or punishment. You see, we live in a world where the, the relationship between cause and effect is, is pretty well established. And normally, we have a pretty good understanding of that, and it's important for us to develop an understanding of that. That's part of what we try to do with our children, where in a trust-based environment, we try to help them understand the relationship between cause and effect. You, you touch that, and it's hot. There's an effect. And I remember as a, as, as a dad of little kiddos, I still am a dad of little kiddos, but when Allegra and Adelaide in particular were, were really young, um, I would have my coffee cup, not full and not piping hot, but warm to the touch. And I wanted to teach them what hot was, what that word was, so that if I said the word hot because they happened to be walking close to the barbecue grill, that there would be some register in their minds, something would click, some definition would come funneling back, and they would know to pause because they had felt a sensation before, and they had been given the word hot. And so we, we just did this little game together. They, they touched the coffee cup, and, and I'd say, hot. And it, it wasn't hot, and they weren't in danger, but it was warm, and it was warmer than a room-temperature glass of water or a cup of coffee that maybe has sat for too long on the table. And try to teach them the cause and effect nature of relationships. And, and, and that just kind of moves through all the different parts of our life. I mean, we, we understand that if we spend all of our money and don't have any left, we don't have any left. There's a cause and effect nature of that. And I remember learning this as, as a, you know, an adolescent or a teenager where I wasn't working and so... My, my money was primarily uh, Christmas gifts, birthday gifts, allowance money that would come in. And, and so if you spent it all on Mountain Dew and candy, you didn't have it to buy baseball cards or basketball cards. So however badly you wanted to buy a basketball card or a pack of them, if you had spent all your money on Mountain Dew and candy, you don't have basketball money or video games or whatever it might be have been. And so as that relates to our psalm and the difficulties that we can experience in life, there's a a measure of life that leads us to think, well, I have experienced hardship because I've done this or this has been done to me. And, And those can certainly and absolutely be true statements. However, this psalmist explores the lament of somebody suffering 
where there's no one-to-one -one correlation between their current circumstances and perhaps present, whether known or unknown, sinfulness. In some ways, as, as difficult as these scenarios are for us to think through, I think of the person who gets cancer, the one who's, who's following the Lord, the one who's aiming to go to the mission field, the one who's lived their lives for the glory of Jesus and want nothing more than to, to cause his name and his fame to be known and, and, and himself to be praised and worshipped and trusted. Why do bad things happen to God's people? But weren't they getting ready for the mission field? Weren't they getting ready to go take the gospel to unknown parts of the world? The end of the spear and the Aka Indians. Weren't they, weren't they going there to do tremendous work? See, we, we struggle with the cause and effect aspect of life in these moments in this psalm explores that. And so this psalm gives us permission to feel and cry out in anguish. This psalm is a reminder to us, secondly, that walking in obedience does not directly correlate to prosperity as we most naturally would define it. So there's not a promise to be found in the Bible that if you do everything that God tells you to do, you're going to find that you never have any wants, you never have any unmet desires, you never have any needs that haven't been met. You, you, you and I might experience hardship. Now, Jesus promises to meet our needs, so I probably shouldn't have used the word needs in that moment. But how, how we're most naturally inclined to define it, and as Americans, that's going to take an American flavor the American dream is going to creep into that. We can be most naturally inclined to think, well, if I just walk with the Lord, then I will always have the money in the bank account that I want to have. I will always, and you can just fill in whatever blanks there might be. But this psalm reminds us that walking in obedience doesn't actually correlate one-to-one -to, -one to prosperity. And thirdly, this psalm gives us encouragement to ask hard questions. One of the things that I tried to just continually keep before our students when I was in youth ministry was that there was no question that we should ever be afraid to ask. Because if we really believe in a God who's created everything, who out of His mouth spoke into being what wasn't previously into being, then he's not too small. In fact, he's big enough for our questions to be asked. Now, that doesn't guarantee that we find answers. So there's the other side to that equation. There's no promise or guarantee that we're going to get the answers to our hard questions. But there is freedom to ask. And so just some of the hard questions that I find myself asking in light of this psalm is, why, why doesn't God immediately answer our prayers for those who are working as missionaries? Like in the mind of Tim, if, if you were going to answer prayers, or if there was prayers worthy to be answered, and again, this is in the mind of Tim, 
um, it probably is the ones for the unsaved people in our lives or the missionaries in frontier places of mission. Perhaps it's you and your witness where God's planted you. Why, why doesn't God immediately answer those? Why doesn't God immediately end abortion? Why doesn't God immediately end racism? Why, why do we as a nation struggle so deeply with deep-seated sinfulness? Our nation's currently reeling under much of that as it stands right now. Why does God allow His children to suffer affliction and trial? Again, in the mind of Tim, if you have somebody who's walking with the Lord, if they, they're trying to, trying to live their lives for Him, they've committed their lives to Him, that those are the last people that it would make sense to get sick. Why, God? And there is permission to feel there's a reminder that walking in obedience doesn't always equate one-to-one with prosperity. And there's an encouragement to ask hard questions. And so as we begin, we see again this psalm was written to the choir master. It was to be sung. It's a maskil. It's contemplative. It's to cause us to stop and think. And it was written by the sons of Korah, the descendants of Korah, who more than likely were the Levite songwriters and singers. And they were the guys and the part of the clan of Levi that would have been composing music and singing songs and leading God's people in worship in the temple. And here they begin in verses 1 to 3, or he begins. It does say sons, so we'll go with the plural there. And they first point our attention to the past provision of God. O God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but you planted them. You afflicted the people, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arms save them, but your right hand and your arm. And the light of your face delighted in them. Where these songwriters begin is thinking about the past provision of God. They go, hey, God, we remember all of the stories that were told to us. We remember all of the bedtime stories that were shared with us about your faithfulness in delivering the slaves from Egypt and leading them out by Moses' Moses's charge and his leadership. And we remember the crossing of the Red Sea being recounted to us. And we remember when Joshua went across the Jordan and conquested and conquered the land of Canaan. You drove out the nations, them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. And it wasn't by their own sword. Like, they weren't bringing their own awesomeness. No, it was by your right hand. By your arm. These writers begin first by pointing our 
attention or directing their attention, and by extension ours, to God's past provisions. These are true. They then transition to God's recent protection. God's recent protection. You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Though you, or through you, we push down our foes, through your name we tread down those who rise against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Notice the the parallel aspects of God's past provisions and now his recent protection. These writers are saying, look, these weren't just stories that we heard. And it's important for those stories to be heard. Moms and dads, it's important for us to share with our children God's past provisions. And if you have a legacy of faith in your family, it's important that that legacy be shared. What what is what does grandma and grandpa have to say about the past provisions of God? What, what does your family of faith have to say about God's past provisions? Those are tremendously important. And they're recounting. It's not just the stories that we heard at bedtime. It's also been our experience. You have recently protected us. And similarly, where it wasn't grandma and grandpa's arm that saved them, or their own sword that led them to victory. The recent protection is at the hand of God. And the writers are saying, look, it wasn't in our bows that we trusted. It wasn't in our swords that we found salvation. It was in you. And in verse 8, in God, we have boasted continually. We, we, we haven't pretended that it was our awesomeness that led to this conclusion, God. Our boast is in you. See, the psalmist lays out generationally there has been a, a, a pattern of following the Lord, and this has been true even in their own recent lives, which makes the contrast into verse 9 that much more stark. And in verse 9, we see the psalmist begin to write about the present problem. But you have rejected us, disgraced us. You have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for the slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us taunt the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long, my disgrace is before me, they write, and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and the reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. The psalmist goes into the present problem. And I just want us to see here 
that in identifying the problem, I want us to notice who the psalmist ascribes sovereignty to. In verse 8, you have rejected us. In verse 9, you have made us turn, or I'm sorry, verse 9, you have rejected us. Verse 10, you have made us turn back. Verse 11, you have made us like sheep for the slaughter. Verse 12, you have sold. 13, you have made. 14, you have made. These actions, the psalmist is ascribing to the direct action of God. These present problems, the psalmist is saying, God, this is, this is because of you. He continues in verse 17, All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. What he's saying there is, God, we've obeyed. Why is this happening? We have obeyed. God, we're, we're, we're trying to walk in faithful obedience before you. We're, we're trying to obey what it is that you've prescribed in the Mosaic Law. And the Mosaic Law acknowledged that we weren't or they weren't going to follow perfectly. That's why there was this sacrifice for sins. There was commands to follow and then there was provision for when those commands were broken. And the implication by the fact that provision existed if and when the commands were broken, is that the commands were going to be broken. So even in the Mosaic Law, God never demanded or expected perfection. Rather, He provides and gives provision for when people do break the law. And so again, even in the Old Testament, as, as we see in the New, the idea of following the Lord is not a matter of perfection, but rather direction. And here the psalmist is saying, look, our direction has been one of obedience. We're aiming our arrows at faithfulness. We're trying to shoot at that target. We want to be known as those who are seeking to follow you well, but all of this has come upon us, and we've not forgotten you. We've not been false to your covenant. God, why? Our hearts have not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals, covered us with the shadow of death. Go to verse 20. He continues, If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God have discovered this? See, the psalmist is saying there, look, look, it, we, we didn't, even if we had done stuff in secret, God would have known. Like, if we had secretly cried out to an idol. God would have known. If we had forgotten him, he'd have figured it out. For he knows the secrets of the heart. And all this has happened. But we, we, we've, we've not forgotten your covenant. We've not forgotten you. We've not been false to your covenant. We've not forgotten the name of our God, we've not spread our hands out to a foreign God. In verse 22, he writes, they write, yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. 
we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Why do bad things happen to God's people? See, it's not the question of why do bad things happen to good people, because that has a philosophical answer to it, that, that ultimately no one's good, because if you have actually the definition of good, you have to have somebody defining what good is, and if you have somebody defining what good is, they must be the perfect standard and perfection of what all of, of everything that is, so that they can be inherently the one who is able to define what good is. And so uh, why do bad things happen to good people? The philosophical answer is there's no good people for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But, but here the question is, why do bad things happen to God's people? We'll see these things echoed in the New Testament as well in just a moment. And as we think about our, our theology of salvation and atonement, when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and we are justified by His grace and by His grace alone, we take on all of the perfection and perfect, obedient righteousness of Jesus. Like we actually become positionally good even though we still may struggle being boneheads at times. Because the believers positionally are good. They're perfect. They've been counted righteous. Why do bad things happen to God's people? The psalmist, I believe, is ascribing every one of these things, beginning in verse 9 and continuing, as sovereign setbacks. We thought a little bit about sovereignty last week together and how the sovereignty of God shouldn't be something we toss around like a Band-Aid. Rather, it's a weighted blanket. Now, Band-Aids can have their, their purpose. They can make a boo-boo go away pretty quick, but they're not going to solve other issues. And a weighted blanket is something you sit underneath that provides comfort perhaps warmth maybe it's a maybe it's a cooling fabric weighted blanket and there's not warmth because it's it's what you wear or put yourself under in the summertime regardless there's a comfort and a security and a perceptive sensing that your skin feels underneath it god's sovereignty is not a band-aid that we toss around and just try to make the boo-boos go away it's a weighted blanket we sit under and here the psalmist is ascribing these things and i think calling them sovereign setbacks as he ascribes the result and the rationale to the actions of god why do good things happen to god's people i love what one commentator wrote as I was studying this, one of the disadvantages of believing in a great God is that He faces you with hard questions. What, what, the, what that commentator meant by that was if, if we had a little God, if we had a God that we could get our minds wrapped around, if we had a God that we could tangibly get tangibly get our, our hands wrapped around, if we could make sense of everything that there was in relationship to God because he, he just was 
not that big, then we don't have the same set of hard questions that we do if we can't figure out what God's up to. One of the disadvantages of believing in a great God and a Godness of God is that He faces you with hard questions. And there was a, there was a philosophy and a theory that came out a, a while ago that was popular for a little while called open theism. And it was this idea that God's just as surprised by your difficult circumstances as you are because He doesn't know all things from the beginning of, well, eternity. By definition, eternity doesn't have a beginning. So He doesn't know all things eternally into the past and eternally into the future. And so He is, He's kind of, he's, he's moving right along with you going, oh my goodness, I didn't, I didn't see that one coming. And then he, he, he acts and intervenes in response to what surprised him as it did you. This psalm speaks directly against that, as do many other places in the scriptures as well. Because here the psalmist is ascribing the hard to the actions of God. And there's a godness to God that we can't get our minds wrapped around and in the midst of the hard, unanswered questions, that's actually a really good thing, even though in the moment the psalmist probably doesn't feel that if that that's a good thing. Jesus said in Matthew 5, and this is just thinking about the reality of God's people and what they would experience, that blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We're not given an explanation, but we are given a command regarding how to respond. Jesus said in John 16, 33, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace in the world, in the world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world, or in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Peter writes in chapter 4, verses 12 to 14, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Again, we're not given the reasons why. Why do, you, why do bad things happen to God's people? We're not given an answer why, but we are told that we will be blessed if it happens or when it happens. We are told that it will happen, that there will be peace when it does happen, and we should rejoice as it happens and not be surprised. But Romans chapter 8 probably gives us even more helpful information. Romans chapter 8 verse 30 
6, the Apostle Paul actually quotes from Psalm 44. And he does, quoting verse 22, Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. And beginning in verse 31 of Romans chapter 8, Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? The things he's referring to is the groaning that creation's still underneath because of its subjugation to futility. The things that he's talking about is the considering that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. He's, he's talking about hope in the midst of the waiting of how as we hope, while we wait for what we do not yet see and cannot yet see, the Spirit takes our prayers, which we don't even know how to pray because its circumstances may be so difficult and translates them before the Father on our behalf. And then there's this unbreakable chain of salvation and purpose from the mind of God planned through the counsel of the Godhead and enacted on behalf of God's people. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul's listening to a whole bunch of rhetorical questions here, but there's some implied answers to be found. The one there is no one is against us if God is for us. He gives his own explanation. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God gave Jesus on your behalf, why would he not, or how could he not, give everything else? Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. The answer to that question is no one. Why? Because it's God who justifies. That's that you and I are counted righteous in Christ. That you and I are good. Because of the goodness of Jesus. We have the perfection and the righteousness of Jesus credited to our accounts. Who is to condemn? No one. How come? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding. Paul began Romans chapter 8 saying that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Jesus died for us. And he was raised for us. And he's now at the right hand of God, interceding for us. And there is no condemnation. So even when the, the tempter comes or the, the accuser of the brethren comes before the Lord and seeks to level a charge against his elect, Jesus, we're told, is there saying, nope, nope, I, I paid it all. Did you, did you pay for that? Yeah, I did. I paid it all. And Including that. Really? That's that's kinda that's kinda ugly. I, I know. I paid it all. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
So tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? No. Paul says, as it is written, for your sake, your sake. Again, look who, look who, in quoting Psalm 44, Paul's agreeing in ascribing whose glory and whose sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But even that, even that doesn't change the fact that we are still more than conquerors through Him who loved us. That word in our words in our Bibles, more than conquerors, it's one word as Paul would have written it. It only shows up one time in the New Testament. It's as if he like just kind of took two words and sandwiched them together to make a new word because he was struggling to figure out how exactly to convey this idea. And the words that he uses are hyper and then the word overcome or conquer. And, and what he's indicating there is the idea of prevailing completely or, 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 or overcoming to an extreme degree. And we use the word hyper similarly in our culture as well because we have like the normal activity of children and then there's the hyper activity of children. I was called a hyperactive child as a kiddo. Like there was like kids who weren't hyperactive and then there was Timothy. Got a little blonde headed boy in my house right now that bears a lot of resemblance to the young Timothy. Here Paul's saying, look, no, 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 no. We conquer above and beyond through or because of him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation. So add to the list he's already given us, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, nor death, nor life, or angels, or rulers, things present, things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, even here, we're not given an answer to why bad things happen to God's people. But what we are told is that if God's people, or when God's people experience the hard, they are inseparable from the love of the Father and are hyper-conquerors. It's a little bit more of a bow than Psalm 44 gives us, but the psalm ends with the request for redemption. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly clings to the ground. The imagery there is like they're on their hands and knees. They're on their faces before God, crying out, pleading with Him. Rise up. Come to our help. 
redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. And there's a request for redemption. Like Psalm 42 and 43 last week, there's not a bow. There's not a happily lived ever after. What there is, is an expression of difficult days. And a God who stands behind them. Ruling and reigning sovereignly over them. Who is intimately acquainted with the griefs and the failings and the feebleness of his people. And we have a high priest who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And Psalm 44 gives us permission to cry out in anguish. And it gives us permission to feel We don't have to be, nor should we be, just plastic church people that walk around saying, fine. Well, how you doing? I'm fine. I'm I'm really fine. Like, I'm I'm so fine. I'm, I'm capital X, capital I, capital N, capital E, fine. You sure? Yeah, I'm fine. We're not, we're not fine people. Nor do we have to be. There is permission to feel. Permission to cry out in anguish when everything's not fine. There's a reminder that walking in obedience does not directly correlate to prosperity as we might most naturally define it or as is defined by our American dream. But the psalmist still does indicate that walking in obedience does matter. And lastly, there's an encouragement to ask hard questions. The psalmist knows that God's not sleeping because he's crying out to him. But yet his experience is such that it feels as if he's so distant that he might as well be. There's permission for you and I, an encouragement for you and I to ask hard questions. We're not guaranteed answers. But from beginning to end, the Bible clearly puts forward a God who's who's so big that we can't understand everything He does. But in that bigness, in that greatness, in that godness that only he alone has, there's comfort and security and refuge. And we are inseparable from his love for us in Christ Jesus. God, I don't know where we're all going to find ourselves in relationship to this psalm, similarly to where we were last week. Some may be experiencing tremendously hard circumstances. Others may vividly be able to think and recall 
of tremendously hard circumstances. Some may be afraid of the hard. And what is unknown a decade from now, five years from now, a year from now? God, I pray that you would help us to see you and to pursue knowing you and not, not so that we find ourselves insulated from the hard, but rather that we might find refuge in the hard. And as Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. Take heart. I have overcome the world and I have said these things to you that you might have peace. God, thank you for honest examples of those who have lived and have sought to follow you well where they didn't understand it all. They didn't get it all. And they give us encouragement and permission to feel in the midst of the hard and to ask hard questions. God, you've promised that you will hold us fast. That our hope is in you. And that in Jesus Christ, we are inseparable from your love. And we pray this in his good name.